1: everybody it's lenny murphy with the green book podcast welcome thank you for spending time with us today i think you're also really really going to enjoy our guests that we are going to be chatting with some of you may remember the seminal book from uh, gosh about a decade ago drinking from the fire hose well that was not the end of the story so today, we have the authors of Drinking From the Firehose, as well as their new third compadre, who has contributed to a new book, Decisions Over Decimals, Striking the Balance Between Intuition and Information. I'm going to let them introduce themselves one at a time. We will start with Chris. Lenny, so great to see you. Thank you for having us today.
2: So uh, we recently uh, just published Decisions Over Decimals, Currently, I'm working at American Express on the Anomax Insights team, Vice President of Research and Analytics, and also Co-Faculty Director in the Columbia Business School, specifically teaching quantitative intuition. Paul, over to you, my colleague and author.
3: <laughs> Great. So Paul Mignoni, co-author of Drinking from the Hose with Chris some time ago, and now I am head of global strategic alliances at Google in the cloud business and co-faculty director of the same program at Columbia. And we did go out and recruit a rookie at Columbia who actually is not a rookie at all. He's the, the best there
4: is in the business. So over to you, Odette. Yeah, with, with that introduction, thank you, Paul. And thank you, Lenny, <laughs> for having us. I'm the nerd on the team. I'm the the academic nerd, Uh, I'm the vice dean for research at Columbia Business School, I'm also a a professor of business at Columbia Business School. I also actually split my time between academia and practice, spending some time at Amazon as an Amazon scholar working with them on their advertising analytics.
1: Thank you, and no, I I think it's fantastic that these guys finally got somebody to help rein them in. uh, There you go. Well, and Lenny,
3: you know it's a problem when all three of us fight to be the nerd on the team. (laughs)
1: well that sounds like my social circle at all times so (laughs) so let's get nerdy i was thinking prior to to the call and we were chatting a little bit about this that when drinking from the fire hose came out i would characterize it as this grand vision of big data right that data we would be able to have these conduits of information that would tell us who what when where how from every source imaginable and that we would be able to leverage that so we wouldn't even need to ask questions potentially. Obviously, that is not how things have played out to date. And I find it fascinating that you would now come to this place of recognizing, yeah, we have lots of data, but there is a role for intuition in this as well. And I think I shared with you, the, the older I get, the longer I'm in this, this business, the more I tend to rely on my intuition that I can look at data, I can think there's something missing here, there's something wonky, there's something that doesn't make sense. There's another question we need to ask to shed more light. I used to think I was a quant guy. I'm far more of a qual guy nowadays, which is not a place I ever thought that I would get to because there's so much more depth and nuance that I find myself wanting that the data doesn't always show. So I suspect that I would need to sign up for your class so you can help me learn how to do that in a more systematic way than just kind of running off and doing my Lenny thing, which some people just look and say, what are you doing? So anyway, that's (laughs) my long segue. Tell us about your journey in kind of arriving to this conclusion of the role of intuition in analytics and how it brought you to writing the book and developing the class.
2: Yeah, you you weren't the only one to think, you know, when when big data became fashionable, that it would, you know, be the panacea. You know, people would make faster, smarter decisions. We would make decisions at the speed of thought. We would have the information flowing. So you you were in great company thinking that. And one thing we have seen over the years, and I think we've all felt and seen this, is, well, two things. One people continue to swirl on decisions, decision-making, the speed of decisions. And that was really the catalyst for us to to write the book. How can we improve decision-making? And it's almost the inverse of the first book we wrote, which was all about having too much information. This book is how do you make decisions and move forward with incomplete information or with the information you have at hand? And a big part of that information component isn't just data, but it's, it's yourself. It is intuition. And the one question we get all the time when we teach quantitative intuition
4: is, can you teach intuition? Odette, did you wanna- Yeah, so how, how do we teach intuition, right? I mean, is it possible? Meaning, can you teach quantitative skills? Sure you can. We actually have been taught quantitative skills all the way from kindergarten, right? They've been teaching us how to do math, how to calculate things. But can you teach intuition? Isn't intuition by definition something very primal, very basic that you either have or you don't? The theory of learning suggests that there are two dimensions to learning. There is competence and consciousness. At the lowest level of learning, we are so clueless that we we don't even know what we don't know. And then we start listening to the Green Book podcast and we learn something new. We learn the term quantitative intuition. I never heard this before. I'm now moving to step number two. I am consciously incompetent. I at least know what it is that I don't know. And then we move into step three. We start with listening to the podcast and we're already good 20 minutes into the podcast. And not only that I've now I learned a new term called quantitative intuition, now I can get into a point where I'm actually becoming, and I understand what it is, but it's really hard. I'm consciously competent. I can do it, but you know, as many of us dealing with marketing research, this becomes something very very particular and we need to work hard together. At the highest level of learning, and we've seen it with good professionals in the business of marketing research, right? Things become intuitive. They look like they do it without an effort, right? We get to the highest level of learning, the nirvana of learning, the intuition, if you will, of learning, where we become unconsciously competent. We do things almost without thinking. How do we get there? Just by keep keep doing it over and over again. By repetition, eventually we get into intuition. So yes, you can learn intuition we weren't born learning knowing how to ride a bike or or driving a car we got there by reapplication and that's the the idea behind learning intuition if you will so what does that
1: look like though to learn intuition obviously i want you to give away the uh give away the cow uh, (laughs) without uh, somebody you know buying it but you think of that at least i think of that as, as something that's intrinsic uh that is simply a part of who we are, some people seem to be more intuitive than others, is a natural, natural trait, not a skill. So, can you give us a view on how they can be developed as a skill? Just some
4: high level view. Yes. Yeah, so, so the, the way developed as a skill is by, and I think the good analogy is riding a bike or driving a car, right? Things that we originally were not proficient at, we in fact did not even know how to do fell multiple times when we started riding our bike. But through the reapplications of these, actually we can get to a point where things become intuitive. We found it with many of the tools. For example, several of the tools we talk about have to do with asking very particular questions, learning how to ask the right question, powerful question. And in the start, it takes time. You need to think carefully about the the question you're going to ask. One of the questions we're going to discuss later, we call IWIC. I wish I knew. What is it that I wish I knew? But when we start doing it in the organization, both individually and as an organization, it becomes part of the DNA of, of the organization and part of our own DNA, making it all the way up to the level of intuition.
1: Now, Paul, I'm curious. When we first met, you were at Deloitte, and I think of Deloitte as you know you're you're a strategy consultant. Your job is to take information and and figure out plans to act on that, and often that information would be incomplete. So. Well, one, is that an accurate <laughs> concept for you? And how much did that shape your view on moving to this place as well?
3: Yeah, I think it, it totally shapes the view. You know, there's the old cartoon of a set of programmers that are about to start coding. They don't even know what they're coding. And the manager says, I'm going to go upstairs and get the requirements. You guys start coding already. Well, and and that's the problem. We're jumping in because we don't have Orientation, you haven't framed the problem in the first place. So you need to take a step back. And at the end of the day, you know, the first book was very much about not drowning in the information. This second book is about navigating the ambiguity, which the era that we're in, there's more and more ambiguity. And what happens with ambiguity? People get nervous, people get afraid, and they retreat to a comfort zone. Some people say, look, a spreadsheet. I know exactly what to do with spreadsheets. And they just dive in. Do you know what you're solving for? Other people say, look, you know what? I just have good instincts. I'm going to listen to my instincts. And the fact is a good decision maker. If you really pay attention, if you look at the examples that you know, that are around
1: you, a good decision maker balances both. Yeah. So how much has the last two years helped shape this concept? Cause I think back to the, you know, the beginning of 2020. And there was so much happening and such a struggle for everyone to get their hands around what was going on. The data simply wasn't available yet in so many ways. And you know, every norm we thought that we could rely on suddenly it was out the door. You know, we had to start from scratch and across almost every business issue. But yet the need to make decisions was still there. The need to make a decision couldn't rely upon waiting till we have the information. Did that help give some impetus to you guys realizing that, hey, it's time to tackle this. There needs to be a balance between using information and you know, kind of trusting your gut in in a more focused way.
3: Well, I think it very much gives some crystalline examples. Let me ask two sample questions. Is COVID over? How do you know? Is a recession about to happen? How do you know? Right? and And yet, Every single day, people go about their lives, they get on flights, they make financial
4: investments and choices because they have to navigate. And I I would add to it that they, so the three of us have been thinking about it way before COVID. We have been teaching this way before COVID. What really the last two years of the pandemic have done is amplifying to all of us that this uncertainty that still remained, as, as Lenny, you started with is just so large, right? I mean, it, it was just an amplification of the mirror of something that existed before. It's not new, it just was the ratio, if you will, of data to uncertainty suddenly amplified toward uncertainty. But we did have the uncertainty even before. Data never eliminated all of the uncertainty. Judgment was always needed. It's just that the ratio has changed. Chris, I'd love to get your take on that as well.
2: So I think, you know, the last two years really, amplified how we had to move forward without having perfect information and we did and we made decisions and i think the other learning that we have seen from that is you know what the challenge is can you and do you feel comfortable with reversing those decisions and what is the reversibility of that decision because there would be new information you know coming out you know the the next day the next week that you would learn and there is an understanding that, you know, this new information, you would be able to basically what we equate to almost, and if you uh, ever sailed to tacking, you know, we need to make micro changes based on the new information. that's what the last two years, I think one of the key lessons, if we take away from making decisions and information that it taught us and that ability to, you know, take the new information to adjust and to move forward. That is really a key
1: lesson in making faster, smarter decisions. That's uh, fantastic. Now, again, thinking about the drinking from the fire hose era, and at that time, access to data seemed to be an unlimited resource, right? It was easy to tap into to the feeds from Twitter and Facebook, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that is not the world that we live in today. So we live in uh, a world of walled gardens of information uh, so that I think that the information is still readily available, but now far more closely guarded. It's far more fragmented across the board, which I would also take to mean that in that environment where we cannot access the information that may be, it may be there, you know the right data may exist somewhere, but it's a hell of a lot harder to get to now than it was. that that increases the need. To be able to function correctly and make, and make decisions from an intuitive standpoint not because of data scarcity per se but simply because of data access is now more limited chris from where you sit within Amex, does that seem accurate to you
2: yeah so i mean you mentioned the socials and there's so much information that obviously flows over there and it's just become integrated in, into what we do but you know that so it's not necessarily from an Amex point of view. I look at it from trying to understand the market point of view and really take the temperature and pulse of, of the market, however you define that, whether it's customers, consumers, understanding the dynamics. So I would say that information is, is existing, but you know, I think we're also much smarter consumers of data on how we what we take in from where. And we are starting to organize and compartmentalize it in in a different way and not treating it all as as equal. Paul, I know you may have a, a perspective on this.
3: Well, I would just add, since you brought up the first book again, Lenny, back then we talked about volume, velocity, variety. Great. Nowadays, you need to also think about volatility and verity, right? Is the information going to be there when you need it? By the way, is it true, especially nowadays? Is it true? So all of that just adds to the ambiguity. And the whole point of decisions over decimals is that you as a business professional, and frankly, in your personal lives, need to build a toolkit for yourself so you can navigate through all this. And so we walk through a variety of techniques to give you those navigational
4: tools. You know, I, I used to teach marketing research at Columbia, I mean, for many years. And we used to the way we used to teach marketing research is you have a business problem, and now you go and you write the survey or write your data, whatever data collection instruments and eventually you get your data. The world has actually shifted on us in a way that the data now exists before the business problem came about. It exists somewhere in some data lake. And our goal now is not necessarily to write the survey or to but actually to find the right fishing rod to fish the data out of the right data lake, right? Which means that. What we really need now is we need to think about, to put judgment into and be very purposeful about what data am I going to get, as opposed to, let me just open the fire hose and and drink. And that's where truly quantitative intuition come about. I need to employ judgment in looking for the right pieces. And that comes more from management leadership, what some of us think about as, as intuition to say, I want to get this, this, and this table, as opposed to whatever exists on the internet from Statista. And that's where we're really the the role of being very precise about what is the problem that we are facing, what we call in the book, focusing on the essential question, the essential problem.
1: Now, you developed a framework for this called uh, I Wish I Knew, the I Wish I Knew Knowledge Matrix, which I assume is kind of central to, to this. Who wants to describe the I Wish I Knew Matrix?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to kick it off, Lenny and Paul, or Deb, feel free to jump in. So it is a, first of all, in the book, one thing we share are a set of very kind of pragmatic tools. And I wish I knew there's a four word question that is deceptively simple. And we think of it in, in two ways. One, it is a powerful tool to enable you to start to frame the issue and you go to your business partners your stakeholders your clients and you ask them a very simple question what do you wish you knew it is that straightforward and the output of that are a series of questions that if you know what do you wish you knew if i could answer it tomorrow if i could answer it by the end of this week what is that essential piece of information that if i could get it for you or that essential question that, if I could answer for you, will enable you to move forward. And the output of IWIC are a series of of questions. I wish I knew this, I wish I knew that. And it does a couple unique things for you as the researcher, as the analyst. One, it starts to tell you what is critically important to that stakeholder. Two, it also starts to highlight their knowledge gaps and also their their agenda and it also points to you know where they have appetite you know in terms of time risk some of the things paul was talking about in terms of look i need to know this in order to move forward so when you think about iWIC, it is simply a tool to enable you to frame the problem in a very short and quick and effective way we dedicate a whole chapter to it in the book. In fact, we spend a half day on it in the program at, at Columbia.
3: I think the the other thing to recognize is that you hear a lot of folks from Elon Musk to many others talk about first principles and you know what what's the essential thing that we're looking for? And then they stop. And if you're trying to work through that, what technique do you use to figure out what is the essential issue that we're solving for. And as Chris said, I wish I knew, The the magical word there is wish because people are not in their swim lanes and just spitting back what they heard their senior leader say. Oh, this is what I really wish I knew. And you're starting to get past the first level of noise that exists in organizations and start to get to the real dialogue and the real issues that matter. And you then get to first principles. You get to, here's the the key thing, as Oded mentioned before, precision questioning, where you start to drill in a little further and a little further until you get to the bone, you get to the, the essence of it all. People don't seem to have techniques for that. So that's where we, we start our series of methodologies with that fundamental technique.
2: Yeah, and when we talk about agile decision-making, Lenny, it's really grounded in how you think, not how hard you work. And iWIC is really that tool to help you and and your business partners start to think differently rather than just diving into the data.
1: Now, Odin, before we actually started recording, you had mentioned that there's actually some thinking about how to create a model similar to what we use conjoint as an example right but but how do you take this knowledge that we have and build a model that can help us get to that here's the gap in the information to help us get to the I wish I knew because sometimes you don't know what it is right so so any uh, any thoughts on on that are we looking at a future where there is I would assume it would be some form of AI that can help us even get to the to the question of I wish I knew. So we can start focusing our intuition more from there.
4: Yeah, I think we all start with some priors when we get into, into a problem, right? We have some priors of what we think is happening in the, in this type of situation, and then we are faced with the data. We are faced with the, with the facts that come at us from the data. And we've been almost trained, particularly with the, with what we talked about earlier on, big data, capital B, capital D, to let go of the priors because Data is king. They're gonna tell us exactly what's happening. And what we are actually pushing is to actually contrast your intuition with the data. And as you are contrasting your intuition with the data, the key is looking for these surprises. The key is looking for the cases where your intuition actually does not is not confirmed necessarily with the data. It is often in these places, as statisticians, you know, we often think about these as outliers. We we get rid of them, we don't deal with them often cases this is exactly where the interesting things happen and by the way the, the, these interesting things could be in two ways they could be a total mistake meaning that's why it's an outlier and if you identify that you have benefited or it could be something super interesting right a real a real finding in fact one of the things we recommend in the book if you are in this area of marketing research and someone is about to show you you know the full set of you know deck with with tables and table after table after table of information, just before we go into that, to stop and say, tell me one or two things that surprised you in that analysis. You'll be amazed how you this helps cut straight to the chase of, of what really matters. And if you think about the, this, this question, what surprised you? Again, a very deceptively simple question. At the end, what is a surprise? Surprise is a gap between intuition and data. Why is it surprising? Because there was intuition, there is data, and they did not match. That's exactly the notion of quantitative intuition. Listen to your inner voice. Listen to your intuition that, again, we were almost taught to to hide because data should speak. And contrast it with data. Do not ignore the data either. <laughs> and look for the places. if they If they both say the same thing, all good. If they don't, that's the place where we should be putting extra effort. That's the place where we should go, Lenny, to these data lakes that you mentioned earlier and dig in deeper to identify who's wrong. Is it me or the data? I
1: love that. I'm going to shamelessly steal that to look for the, the spot between. That's why
4: we put it out in a published book that, so you can steal it.
1: Okay, all right. Well, you heard it here, guys. When I start using that, you know where it came from. But I'm not always going to say, oh, I heard it from. Anyway, so (laughs) uh, (laughs) that's fantastic. I want to be conscious of your time as well as uh, our listeners. So I assume that we're now going to have thousands of Green Book Podcast listeners anxious to sign up for this course. How do we make that happen? Obviously, they could buy the book. But what else
4: can be done? on Columbia Business School Executive Education. Our next course is actually May 9th through 11th here at Columbia Business School, where I'm, I'm actually speaking from. And we are teaching it on a at least twice a year with a more of an exec ed program. We also teach it as part of the Columbia Executive MBA program. So that's a little bit of a, a higher lift to sign to the entire Executive MBA program in order to take this course, but that's another route for it.
1: Okay. Any thoughts on doing anything else? kind of a roadshow or a virtual course or anything uh, along those lines that you could talk about? Lots of thoughts, but nothing firm yet. I will will put it out here that there is space on the stage of IIEX anytime you want it. And as much space as you want, hint, hint, hint. So Feel free to follow up. I mean, seriously, I think this is something that we don't talk about enough in the industry, right? We've always had this dichotomy of quant and qual, which could be this this separation between kind of intuition and data-driven. And I've thought for a long time that we need to be a little more holistic in our approach. And by God, you guys have defined that. And I think that's, uh, it's important for our industry. I think it's also important for the world, so. I'll
4: give you one more line to steal, um, a sentence that we keep saying. Information and intuition are not oxymorons, so consistent with exactly what you said.
2: And Lenny, uh, to your point about the uh, roadshow, I'm actually speaking at TMRE in San Antonio in November. So if someone wants to reach out or, you know, uh, your fellow listeners, happy to engage with them there in person.
1: Yeah, but you'd much rather be at IAX in Austin, Chris. It's much cooler. No, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. TMRE is great, and certainly San Antonio is great. And that's next month, and <laughs> we're, uh, we're not until next year. So, great. On that note, then, how can everybody find you? So, Chris, obviously, people can find you at TMRE, but what about what's your online presence? I think the best place to go to is um, we have a website for the
2: book, www.dodthebook.com. And all of our contact information is there. We can also be reached via LinkedIn.
1: Paul, you want to throw any other anything else out there? Twitter? Any other ways for people to reach you, engage with you? No, the, those those
3: are the main ways, right? Out there on Twitter, we're looking to build a tribe of better decision makers.
4: So connect up with us. All right. Odit, final thoughts? By all means, looking forward to interact with anyone who's interested in how do we bring these two seemingly oxymorons together the information intuition how do we make better decisions make better marketing research by not relying only on the data but also on on some judgment
1: well that's fantastic and i would love to have you guys back and talk more about this again i think it's it's an important an important conversation continue to have thank you for starting it thank you for continuing to be thought leaders for all of us to think about how we make better decisions so Anything else you want to say before no, we wrap just, up? Just thank
2: you, Lenny. Pre- appreciate this time. Always appreciate uh, connecting you and connecting with you
1: and what GreenBook Book does for, for this industry. So, so thank you. Oh, thanks, Chris. I love you too. No, I really, really appreciate you guys taking the time. And I'm sorry it was painful, guys, for our audience. This was one we had to work at. It really, it seems as if the fates were aligned against us and we finally pulled it off. And with that said, I should probably wrap up before the fates hear me and, you know, they strike us down with lightning or something. So thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our guests. Thanks to Natalie, our producer, to James, our editor. Thanks to our sponsors. And that's it for now. Everybody take care. Be well. Bye bye.